Hello, T-Matt. Greetings from one set of mountains to another. <laughs> First of all, I think to the listeners of Religion Unplugged, they should know who you are because your writing appears on Religion Unplugged. What we're going to talk about is your observations. As a longtime religion reporter and columnist and observer of stories and of major events in the world where the ghost in the story is the fact that religion had something to do with it and it isn't there. The most famous story I know about this is Richard Osling, who was at the time a writer for Time magazine. He covered yeah. religion, I believe, and he uh, he kept telling the editors in the late 70s and into 1979 that they really ought to take seriously the Ayatollah Khomeini and his yep. movement in Iran. And they said, it's just a religious movement, Dick. It has nothing to do with economics, politics, international war, whatever. It's just a religious movement. Dick was trying to get his editors to realize that there was no separation between mosque and state. Right. That the other person who was trying to do that, uh, another journal, famous journalist that I interviewed on this topic, was Bill Moyers. Bill yes. Moyers was trying to get CBS to realize, you know, there is no separation here. Your paradigm doesn't fit right. the facts, which goes right. way back. Paul Marshall would tell us that that goes way back into foreign policy prejudices and templates for decades which all boils down to something that you've said many times, you know, that you have what's the real world, economics, politics, the after effects of war, foreign diplomacy, structures of government, that's all real. Religion, not so real. So what we saw here in the early coverage of Afghanistan's, the fall of the U.S. attempt at a new government, and in fact, a new culture, what right. we saw was the old paradigm, both in po political science, foreign policy, that economics must have caused this. Political movements must have caused this. Tribalism must have caused this. But it couldn't have just been religion. Or they, these people weren't dying for their faith. They were dying for something else. We've never really quite figured out what it is. but. That influenced all the coverage that went up to the moment of the fall of the country. And the U.S. government, we now know, or we're learning, we'll see if the press continues to cover it. The U.S. government ignored over and over and over the reality on the ground that the essential Islamic culture of the nation wasn't changing. Yes. That come back in a century, they were still going to be up there in the mountains. Come back in two centuries, they're still going to be up there in the mountains. We're not fundamentally changing the nature of the religious culture on the ground. And that's going to outlast our nation building. And the, the press would then have to have admitted religion was a crucial ingredient as well. And that leads us to all kinds of stories that we now get to watch and wait and see if anybody's going to cover. I, I did a piece that basically said when the Taliban cracks down, Will all the victims be worthy of coverage? And I'm sure you've seen that the coverage has been dominated by perfectly valid concern, which is the valid of the the um, the subject of women's rights. And and I can't stress too much that that's a completely valid story. Absolutely. Yet at the same time, 
that's linked to other groups within the country that, especially out in rural Afghanistan, far away from the TV cameras, what's going to happen to religious minorities? And that includes, again, not to quote him again, but he wrote a whole book on the subject, to quote Paul Marshall, we always forget the minorities within Islam. I know there are several forms of minority Islam in the country, but the key thing is just the simple split between Taliban and the kind of mainstream, for lack of a better term, Indonesian or other Islam. The middle class. Yeah, the people who were willing to cooperate with the building of a different nation, with Sharia, but a different approach to Sharia, with Islamic schools, but a different approach to Islamic schools. What's important to say here is it's not going over with women who want to be observant Muslim women, want to keep their heads covered, but also think that they might, that they would not might, but that they should have a vote and also yeah. that they should be educated and, right. and want education and want the opportunity. One of my doctors at the Mayo Clinic is a Muslim woman who has her head covered. Well, that woman probably wouldn't fit in the Taliban's idea yeah, right. of Islam. And so those, those women that American, you know, they were looking for education for jobs and for opportunities to work and all that sort of thing to better their families. And so, abstract American feminism is kind of uh, falls on deaf ears is what you're trying to say. And I think you're right. And I think Jermaine Greer, I know she was married to a Muslim man. I can't remember if he was an Afghani, um, a famous feminist icon has talked about this very thing. I think I heard a Muslim human rights activist once in Washington argue that the Brits and the Americans were always prejudiced against the idea that a Muslim culture is going to give God the right to vote. And that probably if we had pressed for things resembling constitutional monarchies, we would have had a better chance That's interesting. To, to have had dialogues with a lot of these nations. That's but there, there's going to be a, a, a king or there's going to be a shah or something, but we might be able to get representative con- um, parliaments yeah. running next to well, it. Let's get back to the coverage, yeah. teammate. Let's try to focus yeah. on that. Because okay. from the beginning, you know, we were talking back and forth about how how their how religion wasn't covered. And then I, I noticed, you know, a lot of the coverage has been about women's rights, which is absolutely fair. But the New Yorker just did an article on the other Afghan women. I found this an interesting thread, um, and I could call it up. Um, It's in the new issue of The New Yorker, but it's called, as I said, The Other Afghan Women, and it's about Afghan women who are glad the Americans are gone. It's listen to this story, The Other Afghan Women. It's the latest issue. In the countryside, and it's by Anand, Anand Gopal. That's a pretty famous name, I think. In the countryside, the endless killings of civilians turned women against the occupiers who'd claimed to be helping them. Late one afternoon this past August, Shakira heard banging on her front gate in the Sangin Valley, which is in the Helmand province in southern Afghanistan. Women must not be seen by men who aren't related to them. And so her 19-year-old son, Ahmed, went to the gate. Outside were two men in bandoliers and black turbans carrying rifles. 
They were members of the Taliban who were waging an offensive to wrest the countryside back from the Afghan National Army. One of the men warned, if you don't leave immediately, everyone is going to die. Shakira, who was in her early 40s, corralled her family, her husband, an opium merchant who was fast asleep, having succumbed to the temptations of his product, and her eight children, including her oldest 20-year-old Nilofar, as old as the war itself, whom Shakira called her deputy because she helped care for the younger ones. The family crossed an old footbridge spanning a canal, then snaked their way through reeds and irregular plots of beans and onions past dark and vacant houses. Their neighbors had been warned to, and except for wandering chickens and orphan cattle, the village was empty. Um, this says that they walked for hours, and then the uh, pounding of artillery filled the air, announcing the start of a Taliban assault on an Afghan army outpost. Then it says the, uh, the longest war in American history ended on August 15, when the Taliban captured Kabul without firing a shot. I've read several stories with similar structures. Yeah. And the key is that within an Islamic worldview, the Taliban was the party that was against corruption. And, and yes. by leaving certain systems in place, yes. those systems functioned in ways that the locals considered non-corrupt. The yes. Western world brought in new forms of corruption, yes. many of which hurt the very women that you're reading this piece of, about. Yes. The, it ends with her family, with the Americans bombing her house and leaving half of it destroyed. But she's back home and she's sure a paved road will soon run by and her daughter will be married and her children will, will walk to school and the girls will have plastic dolls. She'll own a machine that can wash clothes and her husband will get clean. And she should, because the Taliban won't put up with this. So um, she says, uh, they still, they will visit Kabul and stand in the shadow of giant glass buildings. I have to believe, she said, otherwise, what was it all for? It is a story about Afghan, about observant Muslim Afghan women who aren't going to be so sorry that we left. And, and it's about the structures of an inherently religious culture. Yes. That we, whatever we think of their weaknesses and their strengths, it's very hard to deal with that culture if you don't want to admit that they exist. Yeah. And that they have certain benefits in the eyes of people whose worldview is different than your own. The ability to allow people to describe their own goals and their own belief and their own logics in their own words is a crucial aspect of journalism. Leaving religion out is ignoring physical, material facts yes. in the case. I yes. mean, and that's, that's the big idea right there. As, as in the story I just read. I mean, yeah. at the conclusion is she's happy. Her daughter will be able to get married. Her kids will be able to go to school. Her husband will get clean because the Taliban won't put up with it. And her goals for life. Yes. Will have a and better will, chance to be perceived. As opposed to, a, you know. She if, will be a successful mother and a happy wife. And in Kabul, there probably are women in the middle of all that who might want to study law, but they want to study law to work within an Islamic culture. So we, we may still see some change in the culture of Afghanistan, in the cities and wherever. I don't think they can make 20 years go away. As someone said the other day, they can't run their utilities now without the people who've been running their utilities for the past 20 years because of all the technology that's come along since then. Cultures have a way of creeping forward in subtle ways. 
but the essential nature of the religious basis of that culture is highly unlikely to change. Which is to say that those, as you said, those those um, mullahs who led mosques under the old government, and also those women who were allowed to study yep. Islamic law, and those women who were studying perhaps other law or medicine or whatever, yep. are one set. Then there are Muslims who aren't Taliban, um, and as there are Sunnis who are not. I don't know how yep. many Shias there are, and I don't know if there are Yazidis. Tiny, tiny community, I think, based on what I've seen. Um, but those people will be in trouble now. Yes. And there's a very small underground Christian church. I've read it in enough places now that there is a small underground church there. Um, so those people are kind of in trouble. But also, insofar as there is any kind of gay community, um, they are in trouble um, from the Taliban as well. So all those people are in trouble now. And those are all valid stories if you're using a traditionally liberal concept of human rights. During um, the ISIS period, we saw very little coverage of religious minorities, gender minorities, and whatever in Iraq and Syria. We saw amazing coverage in the Washington Post in particular. I have almost no idea how they sourced these stories. But they did tremendous stories on the women of ISIS, which is what they called them. It was a whole series in the Post. But I, all through that time, I wondered, what would it take to get serious mainstream coverage of religious minorities, including Muslim religious minorities, right. in these countries um, under these conditions? Now, I've started a file called nice. After the Taliban, and I'm right. collecting some things on life, and, and I'm, I'm going to do a post to get religion on that sooner or later. And of course, I've just put the story you gave me from the New Yorker, which just, I just looked up the URL and put that straight into that file. Yeah, um, but reading as much as I did and looking at the end, it seems that that story could go several ways because it seems to me that, that it was very much taking that woman's religious identity seriously, which is important to do. Now, I can't get into names or details or anything else, but I have family members who are part of an organization that had missionaries in Kabul. Oh, wow. Oh, you know, and I, I know that there has been some forms of evangelism and revival among Protestant churches in Afghanistan. What happens to the few Catholics that are in the nation? Yeah. You know, what happens to the various Asian Orthodox forms that are there? We'll see. The Muslims may treat them better. But I guarantee you, people that were linked to missionary efforts and to missionary relief efforts from the West there's a really good chance that that's some of the people who are still trying to get out of the country. My favorite Washington story from the years I lived in Washington was in the Weekly Standard. Fred Barnes reported it. He was at a rally in front of the White House protesting U.S. rights being special, special recognized status being given to China. And you had, you know, you had Joan Baez singing, but then you had Gary Bauer was one of the key speakers. And he reported a great. It was a leading conservative who was with focus exactly, on family, exactly. and family research. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. He said there was this great moment where Gary Bauer is standing on stage and Richard Gere, the famous, no. very, very super liberal Buddhist convert, Hollywood superstar, steps up wearing a black leather jacket and jeans. And here's little short Gary Bauer, you know, in his three piece gray Protestant right. suit. Right. 
And Barnes said, Richard Gere walked over to him and said, Gary Bauer, my main man, and picked him up and hugged him and swung him around. And Fred said, surely one of the strangest moments in Washington history, but one that perfectly captured how liberals had turned away from their old convictions on religious liberty and human rights because it involved China, it involved Apple, it involved big industry and big tech. Yeah. It's kind of like our situation now with coverage of Muslims in China. It's like if you really go after human rights issues in China, it's almost like it helps the right. Just last night, well, it wasn't last night, it was yesterday. We, we spent time with some very dear friends. We're in New Mexico and they have a, a totally off the grid house that they built 20 years ago. Straw bale, yeah. adobe, um, totally sat solar, drilled a well. They've been global travelers all their lives. I've known this woman since, well, I've, she's known me since I was born. She's older than I am. But in, I think it was in 85, she was in Lhasa. And then they went back, she went back in the late 90s and she didn't recognize the place because all the Tibetan-ness of Lhasa that she had seen the first time in the 80s was now restricted to an area around um, their main temple. And the rest of the city was totally Chinese in character. She'd also, she's been to China five times as well over the years. And she, she saw what happened. And of course, the story's known. I mean, the, the signification, is that the correct pronunciation of yeah. Tibet, has been you know, ongoing. And now it's the signification of Zhangjian province. Um, and also it's pretty brutal <laughs> to, put, to put it mildly. And so, yeah, you'd think that America would, Americans would be upset about this. And that has a tendency to skew coverage in our current yeah. niche-oriented, subscriber-based form of right. media, and which right. preaching to your choir makes economic sense. Because the more clicks you get and the more subscribers you get that are happy about your coverage, the more you money know, you have. That's more money you have. What would be interesting if we could find the scholar to do it is to compare what the U.S. did in Afghanistan to what the U.S. did in Japan circa 1945. That's certainly a wild idea. You know, that's what I'm here for, wild yeah. ideas. But it is a, comp a fair comparison. We basically ran Japan right after World War II. There was a decision made to keep the emperor. And the United States could have obliterated that office. That's a good point. That's a good and, point and, right there. And we chose not to. You know, one of the reasons that, that Truman said that he dropped the bomb was because it would have been hand-to-hand -hand fighting through every island of Japan. And already the American firebombing of Tokyo took more lives than Nagasaki and Hiroshima put together. And there was a terrible attrition going on. And, and that was part of what the decision was. Whether he was right or whether he was wrong is, is a, yeah. you know, a historical question. You can kind of tell, I think he made the best decision. But he was thinking about that. But it meant that the Japanese were very, very proud of their culture, very proud of who they were. They were willing to fight and die for it. And yeah. somehow the United States goes in and they become our friend. Two quick questions, though. 
I wonder, you're After asking, 20 years, we were yeah, gone, yeah. T-Matt, and the yeah. nation didn't fall apart. Yeah. And they didn't start militarizing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, here's, my, here's my two questions about that in terms of how it may have affected foreign policy. But as we know, foreign policy has then tended to shape a lot of the elite coverage through journalism. The J Japanese weren't trying to conquer the world on behalf of religious faith to win uh, the world for their God. No, absolutely not. As part of that, it right. was inherently a traditional and fairly secular culture. Yes. Well, and so yes. I figure, I figure that that had to be part of it. Second, so much of the Muslim world has an approach to life that I think is so far from our own. Yeah. Whereas the Japanese emphasis on education, bureaucracy, yeah. structure, industry, capitalism, you know, I think you've just pointed out with your comparison of Japan and Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria that we're struggling here with people whose absolute values in life don't line up well with America. Right. And, and, and I think that's just as true, frankly, of the Christian community in those nations as it would be with the, be with the Muslim. Although yeah. there's this long history of the Christian, of the churches of the East serving as a bit of a bridge to the West, you know, and providing lots of lawyers and doctors and whatever among the Palestinian people. And the, the concept of being a Palestinian, and I've never read a news story that took this into account, the concept of being a Palestinian was a concept created by Christians because they were trying to find a cultural unifier larger than Islam yeah. to say we're part of these lands too. Robert Kaplan, of all people, wrote a book about that, that it was very much the Christian missionary influence. Yeah. Well, but also the ancient churches, not just missionary, but the ancient churches. Oh, no, churches. yeah, the missionaries, yeah, but the, and they, well, yeah. they connected with the ancient churches. Yeah. Well, all of this, I'm, I'm sitting here looking to see if other concrete examples that I called okay. up. The thing about the U.S. government, the trying to spot the ghost and the dramatic fall of America's military, and, and with never mentions religion, of course, but I spotted it because it kept talking about the American values of the American military. And we thought that was going to make their military stronger. But when the U.S. air support goes away, they're left with nobody but their most elite fighters, many of whom who fought to the death. And the Americans need to realize that not all Afghans turned and ran. There's a podcast on, um, on Religion Unplugged with an American yeah. veteran of Afghanistan who yeah. says similarly that, that, that he knew Afghan army people who fought valiantly. Yeah, that story was one of the ones that to me demonstrated that we didn't understand that America was in that nation. The word nation building gets used a lot, and that's a perfectly good word. But if you start calling it colonialism, which is what it might have felt like yes. to people, you know, watching. Well, when, when you're bringing yeah. in a whole different value system. Right. And, and asking then the other fight to defend a value system that they don't really share. And then the and other that's story, what they're fighting for. Yeah. The other story involved not just the New York Times, it involved several, but it was me asking what I think is the big, big question for the next three months in news coverage here, to give a nice summary thing here for the end. Right. Will the victims be worthy of coverage? Yes. Will we find out who, and I know this is a very hard story to report, 
But during the Iranian revolution, they never managed to shut down Twitter. It's hard to knock the satellites out of the sky. During, not during Carter years or something like that. The most recent Iranian I was going to say, in 1979, T-Man, I know there was no Twitter. No, okay. The most recent, a decade ago. They never, you can't knock the satellites out of the sky. There's going to be smart video, smartphone video. There's going to be people trying to get reports out. We shouldn't necessarily accept everything they say is right. the perfect truth, but these are all going to be victims and minority groups that are worthy of coverage. Right. And it's going to be part of the aftermath story in Afghanistan. I won't get covered because you can't cover those stories without the religious nature of why those people are living and dying. Right. It's a perfect picture of what some of us have been saying. And Paul Marshall, who created, we keep, I keep quoting Paul. Paul created the term ghost. The religion ghost is a term from Paul Marshall. Paul Marshall wrote the book. Um, yeah. Uh, silenced Silence. about uh, religious minorities all over the world, yep. all kinds, Buddhists in some places. Um, I don't know about Hindus, but it covers the, the whole map, if you yeah. will, of the planet on religious minorities persecuted for their faith. So that and I wrote down, I have it here in my notes. I wrote down one of my all time favorite Paul Marshall quotes from an Oxford seminar in 2006. He was talking about how our overarching view of cultural superiority tends to just kind of wash away all kinds of stories. But then he, he finally said, we need to remember that fighting blasphemy is blasphemy. Fighting the blasphemy laws is blasphemy. Yeah. And that's why we can't get the religion out of the next two months, three months, who, who knows how long. We can't get that out of the Afghanistan story. If we do, we're ignoring the actual facts on the ground. Yes. And it's a legacy that due to our history of the way um, the press was caught totally off guard in 1979 and 80 yeah. and realized at that time that they had missed something. Um, and it's the same reason that the others, you know, the, the story that I say was the best professional day of my life when Indira yeah, yeah. Gandhi was shot. Right. It, it wasn't political alone. It was religion. She had violated the religion of the Sikhs and it didn't matter to them how what they'd sworn to India. She had violated their holiest place, the Golden yeah, Temple, yeah. and it didn't matter. She had to die. But, you know, it's a whole new people in charge, T-Matt, yep. from the people who learned something in 1980 about the realities of religion. And the question remains, will the re religion facts of this story be covered um, in our media? And we shall see. There's some technology angles that should make it easier like a, because of the smartphones, because of the satellites yeah. and whatever. But you still have to want to see the story. And the, the biases that began in foreign policy views and the, the views of the expert think tanks and the bureaucracies, I, I guess I've written it hundreds of times. I would never deny that the politics is real. I would never deny that the economic factors are real. I would never deny any of that. No. But I'm saying that sometimes when people choose to die and dedicate their lives to something, there's more to it than politics and money. And, and I, 
that's the that's the point you have to concede to cover these stories. Yes. And that's a good place to end, I think. Okay. Thank you, T Matt. Thank you. Go out and look at a sunset or two. Okay. I hope our paths cross. Well, I do too. They will, T Matt. Okay, thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. This episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by Roberta Amundsen, edited and produced by Peter Freeby. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of the Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged or the Media Project, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.com.